Due to social distancing efforts, this episode of Hectic was recorded over Zoom, so please excuse any sound glitches that you may hear. We are staying safe and we hope that you are too. Otherwise, please enjoy our episode. Hi, my name is Amukelani Amnisi, but you can call me Moo. Hi, my name is Rufaro Chifro, but you can call me Ruffy. <laughs> and hi, my name is Alinaso Tatiana Machulusengo, but you can call me Al. <laughs> and welcome back to the second episode of our Hectic Podcast. Um, I think we'd like to start by saying thank you for all the support everyone has shown us in our first episode, and we're so excited to show you guys what we have. So today, we will be talking about private schools in South Africa. So each of us attended a different prestigious private school in SA, and today we're going to unpack our experiences as Black women in these predominantly white spaces. So if anyone had been keeping up with social media over the past few months, particularly over the height of the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd's murder, you might have seen that there was a wave of former students, mostly students of color, who were reckoning with the trauma they carry after attending what are supposedly the best schools in the country. And so before we start our own reckoning, we thought we'd give some brief context into the same-sex private school as an institution in SA. So when we talk about private schools, we mean schools that do not rely on the state for funding. So to specify, in this episode, we'll be talking about a very specific kind of private school. There are over 2,500 private schools in the SA, most of which comprise of low-fee private schools. However, the schools we'll be talking about are a league of elite private schools that are anything but low fee. So these schools are usually same sex, i.e. all boys or all girls schools. And in most cases, religion is central to the school's ethos. So much so that they are often named after a saint and chapel services and prayers are the norm. Their histories are often rooted in colonialism, which you can tell from the architecture, uniforms, monuments, school songs and various other facets of the schools. And these schools are incredibly expensive, with over 30 schools charging over 300,000 rand per annum in fees. This price makes these schools incredibly exclusive and inaccessible to most of the population, which might explain why these schools are overwhelmingly white. And so without further ado, let's get into the episode and contextualize what our experiences were as black women at these schools. So I'll start. Um, So all my life I've attended a private school um, and in high school I went to an all-girls boarding school in KZN and boarding schools, private boarding schools in KZN are quite popular and my school was incredibly Christian and we were founded by nuns and I think, um, yeah, there was colonialism top to bottom from my school. Our architecture was like Jan van Riebeck's dream, just so Dutch and colonial. (laughs) Um, Our uniforms... um, we're just I can't even describe like their shape we had to wear crests every single day um and yeah Mm. my school was predominantly white and the only black teacher we had was our Zulu teacher which is a common tale at these schools (laughs) and (laughs) um Amu do you want to talk about your experience I'm already hearing like the similarities between our schools in terms of our uniforms our skirts were tartan so very like Scottish bagpipes in the mountain um, mm-hmm. type vibe. Um, it was a Christian school and Christianity was always weaponized 
to shut down any and all kinds of efforts from the student body to bring yeah. in any kind of inclusive and progressive change. We had chapels once a week, which students of other faiths were expected to attend. Mm. You know, despite major pushback every year, uh, they would always just say that this is a Christian school. You knew you were going to a Christian school, so you have to go to chapel. Yeah. And I think it's just the story of independent schools in South Africa. You know, I forgot yeah. to mention, I did go to an independent all-girls school in Johannesburg. And honestly, from my experiences, it'll be difficult to pinpoint which school exactly, because if you speak two people who went to these schools, you would think that we all just went to the same place, basically. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that's the scariest part because even with like what I have to say about my school, like you basically wouldn't be able to differentiate. Um, but I think one thing that probably makes my school especially just like weird was how much they just paraded their colonial history. <laughs> and they made it like almost like something to be revered um because i don't know if this will like give too much away about the identity of the school but it's a heritage site and like i remember grade four this was a year after i joined the school and they made us do this like weird excursion right oh my gosh this is so traumatic <laughs> so our school is like on a hill and like around the plot there's the graveyard of the man who used to originally own the plot of land on which our school was built and they made us go to this graveyard like yeah guys um <laughs> this is it you know and we had like, like a whole booklet where we had to fill in this information and like we started looking at the different uh names of our houses and the origins of these names and they'd be like these horrible colonial figures that we even studied years later in history and you see the impact that these men actually had on south africa how they built the colonial structures that we live in today and it's just really fucked up and i think really maybe we have the basic things like hair and language and like policing of black students and all that kind of stuff but like i think that's the one thing that really stuck out to me especially on reflection of what mm. my school was mm. um i was actually thinking the other day like I think the scariest kind of colonial thing about my school, and I also hope this doesn't give too much away, but um, we had a slave bell, and we called it the slave bell. Oh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say to that. Oh my, that's oh no, what like it would be like, yeah, like there's the metric wing next to the slave bell, and oh, it was just like. <laughs> <it was laughs> massive bell that we had and like people would just call it the slave bell like super duper chilled and I remember I would just like I would ask my teachers especially like towards the end of my high school career I was like okay but guys this isn't like why is it called the slave bell and no one could give me an answer because they knew <laughs> it was called the slave bell and scary thing as well I googled slave bells and it's like a thing that a lot of schools in South Africa have I was about to say, it's definitely not unique to your schools. I've heard a lot of students, especially when students of color were confronting their schools. They often in people's testimonials were like, we have the slave bell or the slave whatever. And you there's know? so much like, slavery, like memorabilia around these schools. And the weird thing is that 
no one has any reason for why it is like no one ever wants to overtly state why it's there. Yeah. But yeah. challenge it and want to take it away. No. No. <laughs> their identity and their history. And you're like, but guys. But guys, it's like, what am I supposed to think as a black student every single day mm-hmm. of the school? And there's a slave belt that's constantly reminding me of my subordination. Like, I don't, how am I supposed to thrive in that environment? Um, which I think will kind of bring us into the next part of the episode is I think we should all talk about what it was like spending such formative years of our lives as black women in these predominant spaces. So what was it like for us to come of age at a private school in South Africa? Bitch, the trauma. (laughs) Straight up, straight up. (laughs) Trauma. Um, All I can say, just in so many different facets like what was happening firstly at school and then what would happen outside of school like the social settings that I would Mm. find myself in as a result of attending a private school so I attended public school all my life until I was 11 it was when I turned 11 that I moved to my private school and it had a junior school and a high school so I started in a junior school and then just moved through the system so from the ages of 11 to 18 I attended a private school. Yeah. And I can't even fully unpack or even name all the ways that it changed my life and just impacted me and shaped me because it was just so integral. I just never thought about it. It was just the culture that I was growing up in. And so I, one thing that I will say that I was very aware of as only as I really left high school was that, during my time at a private school, I internalized the idea of being the only one. I took a lot of pride in kind of my role as, I guess, the most accepted or most visible or influential black girl in my school because I did serve as a deputy head girl. And so I took a lot of pride in the fact that I was granted access into these rooms and into these conversations. And, you know, I had my proverbial seat at the table, Mm. you know, when nobody else was allowed there. And I was like suddenly granted access. And I I was very protective and territorial of my Mm. space at that table. And I look back and I just cringe. And I'm so ashamed at the gatekeeping that I participated in during my time there because I internalized the idea that there was only space for me only one black girl could make it at a time Mm -hmm. and this was my time and I'll be goddamned if anyone takes it away from me it was just it was just really Mm -hmm. disgusting Mm -hmm. um yeah I think that is something that I think a lot of people will um resonate with is kind of having feeling like you're like the exceptional black student um and i think it's interesting how that exceptionalism is like directly proportional to your assimilation to whiteness Mm -hmm. um and so i think yeah i think for me as well like i definitely felt um again like i was also one of the head girls at my school um which was one of two black girls on my prefect body um and so yeah of course i was like okay like i'm (laughs) Yeah, I know, one of two black girls on the basic body. And um, yeah, you kind of, of course, you internalize the message of like, okay, I'm the only one who made it, you know. Um, there is only space for me because you're constantly seeing. And it's like, that was something that throughout my high school career, like 
you only ever saw like one or two um, mm. black prefects. And so like, of course you internalize all of that stuff. So that's particularly traumatic. Um, yeah, Rufaro? Um, I think what makes me probably kind of different from you guys is that like my sister, my older sister, was mm. the DPC head girl. Mm. And she was technically like the Obama black, the black that they wanted in those kinds of spaces because mm. she wasn't trying to rock the boat so much as to prevent other black girls from being able to get into those kinds of positions, get into the council or like, mm. you know, get into those rooms that Amu was talking about. Mm. Um, so I think internally for me, I tried to make sure that I wasn't on that end so that I wouldn't have to perpetuate the same cycles. So I went like from Obama black to Malcolm black to like, (laughs) (laughs) I went from there to Stokely, Stokely Carmichael. And I just really, I wasn't trying to allow a lot of the things that were happening in the school to continue. And I think in the process of that, me and my like, black conglomerate of just like mm. radical people <laughs> I think we just really alienated um, a lot of people in the process and it became quite difficult because you were just always those black girls, the loud black girls and just aside from the being just a black person in general who is just seen as a threat just in life we added on to being a threat by actively doing things that were threatening the school systems so I think that was quite interesting for me so even when I did get like a seat at the table when they put me on the council it was really confusing for me because I was like why on earth would you want to put me here but um yeah that was quite interesting for me just constantly trying to navigate trying to figure out how I meant to be um some sort of a guide for young black girls in the school but at the same time every single teacher and every single admin uh head or whatever it is they just constantly try to discredit me or discredit the other black women who are working with me to try and like better the school somehow so i was just like a walking threat essentially yeah um i think you're kind of bringing up something very interesting when you're talking about your conglomerate of black girls and um i think um often at these schools we see black girls being policed in a very specific way. Um, And I think, I don't know, like at least at my schooling experiences, there was always kind of a group of black girls who were all friends with each other. And they were like the school's favorite target. They were always too loud or always breaking the rules. Shirt, like dresses too short, like something Mm. was wrong braids the wrong color like (laughs) like always something wrong and all these things to say that they were too black to be in these spaces you know know what's Um, so interesting about that mm. is that they were so unacceptable in every setting except when it came time for sports days (gasps) then then Those same unacceptable, loud, threatening, aggressive black girls were the school's Mm. shining stars. They wanted Mm. them on the front lines, leading the war cries, everything. Oh, yeah, Mm. absolutely. Um, I think, were you guys part of that group of black girls? Were you a different kind of black girl at the school? Oh, God. Want to talk about that? 
it was like being both. I think mm-hmm. I existed in like two worlds, like with like just the separation of trying to be the Amandla black girl, <laughs> <laughs> but then also trying to be myself, who was technically a black girl who would go on Tumblr at night and like search the 1975 memes. <laughs> I was that girl who would like while she's in history class saying yeah um the black panther party <laughs> was uh, uh listening to radiohead whilst i'm in the same history class like it was just like that constant like duality <laughs> your range girl your, your range, range? <laughs> thank you but yeah just existing in two worlds consistently and just trying to navigate being in boxes. If you're a black person, you're definitely put in a box the, the minute you just exist. And it's really annoying because you don't get much leeway. It's either that you are the Amantla black girl or you're not. Like, there's no, there's no, there's no way to be about it. Yeah. And it's, it's hard when you find yourself in the in-between because it's like, what do I do? I have to choose between the both. And I think um, I kind of experienced the same as you, Rafaro, uh, where... I don't know. I feel like I was, I had like two of my closest friends from high school who were black, um, but we weren't necessarily like the loud black girls, but we weren't, we weren't like very white, whatever that means. Um, and so, yeah, we, we kind of oscillated between being very like at the front lines of talking about social justice and very Amandla Wetu. Um, but then also, you know, we were listening to like, body on me in the background you know oh, like, no. <laughs> the way you go so fucking hard for that song <laughs> that song is a banger that um, song is the song that song is the white song if there's a good white song it's that one yeah that was um, a good white song that was a phenomenal white song um and yeah we were also like um me and my friends we were very much the likable black girls and so our white friends loved us. Like, they were like, oh, come to all these places, come to all these places. Mm-hmm. And I think with that, socially, we found ourselves in very um, predominantly white spaces. But let me not jump ahead. Um, um, <laughs> so I was totally a magical Negro throughout just my whole private Do you want to explain? So the magical Negro is this trope that you often see in films, the black best friend who literally only exists for the self-improvement journey of, you know, the white protagonist and main character. Mm. And so I was very much a magical Negro in the sense that just close your eyes and listen to how I speak. (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't know that I was a black woman, you would be like, who it, like who the fuck is speaking right now shut the mm. fuck up jessica <laughs> <laughs> type of thing yeah so you know my voice i am you know kind of i'm this very socially acceptable and palatable kind of black girl in the way that i speak and also i think my socioeconomic background kind of made put me in a place where i could relate to certain experiences with the white girls yeah. at my school. So I knew what it was like to, you know, I could sit down and talk to them about, oh yeah, I remember that like when I went to New York. Yeah. And you know, I could mm-hmm. sit down and have those kinds of conversations with them, 
you know, at some point in time, my family had a holiday house in Cape Town, you know, there were certain experiences that I could relate to with them. And so I was very palatable. They love taking me to their parents. Oh my God. White <laughs> parents adore me, adore me. And I think my, I only really started becoming very close friends with the black girls in my grade around the time I was 16. But that mm. was also kind of my membership to that group. I never reached full membership. And I think mm. a large part <laughs> of that was the language barrier. Ooh. I, this twang, chow, if you think this twang can speak any <laughs> African language, oh, I have news for you, baby. Oh, I have something to tell you. Mm. I do not speak any of the South African languages. I understand Zulu because I just grew up with my parents always speaking it to each other. So like, mm. if you speak Zulu to me, I'll understand you, but I will open my mouth and deliver dust, child. <laughs> dust. <laughs> I will reply to you in, in English with this twang and you will be very disappointed in me. Mm. And I felt like such an imposter being around all those black girls. But I also felt like I was compromising the safety of their spaces with each other because it would require them to translate. It would require them to, to also kind of straddle English and, you know, whichever language they were speaking on any particular day. And so I felt like I felt unwelcome, but I also felt mm. like I was intruding. If I, you know, spent too much time in that space. But I never also felt entirely welcome and comfortable in white spaces either because I, I'm black, first of all. But also white people have this really interesting exclusive membership, you know. You can be as close as you want to them. But a lot of them grew up, you know, their parents are friends. They mm. went to the schools. They grew up going on holidays to plit together and just forge bonds and groups that no matter how hard you try or how much money you like you have, you'll just never be able to fully access all of them. Yeah, completely. The um, first thing I'm thinking right now is in terms of the language, because I think for me, it was the fact that I don't really have the background with Zulu or any of the other South African languages, because I am not from South Africa. But um, coming into your private school, where the first thing that I meant to do is learn technically three languages, because I was around about the age of seven. So I was only I only started learning English properly like a year or two before or something. So I. A nigger be out here trying to learn English, <laughs> trying to learn Africans, trying to learn Zulu. And I'm like, what is happening? But also, I just did not want to learn those two languages specifically because I think that was my only form of resistance against like being actively part of this country and having to be a member of whatever this society constituted. And I was really upset by the fact that we had to move. And now having to grow up and then the more black girls just like started filtering into the school and yeah. you realize like um said the key to that is language and you also yeah. don't want to be just like that person. Mm -hmm. But also I think the biggest thing for me was just learning that there are black people for every black person. Like where you may not 
find your people who listen to the same things that you do, watch the same things that you do, also struggle with language, you'll find them at some point. Like, not there, not in, not in high school, not in primary, <laughs> probably not. Some, at some point, um, maybe mm. in uni, maybe not. But there are Black mm. people for every Black person. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Vara. I think yeah, blackness is not it's not this like monolithic thing. It's like a defining thing that makes you black. Like it's fluid. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So as black women, right, in these schools. I want us to talk about our self-esteem. Oh god. <laughs> sometimes you can talk about um kind of these things like i don't know that aren't don't feel as personal as self-esteem and a lot of people i feel a lot of white people don't realize that as black women we grow up internalizing all of these terrible messages about ourselves and our self-image and these spaces they take such a toll on us mentally as well so i think i want us to talk about that a little bit um okay. yeah, I I remember tweet and someone said when did you realize that you weren't ugly you were just a poc surrounded by white people and i was like girl 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 it took time i I felt seen by that tweet i felt so seen because (sighs) oh my god i hated myself for so long same Mm. absolutely same and it's like uh, i don't know for me like body was a big thing because like you know, mm. African bodies are, you know, quite different to white European bodies, you know. Um, so, I, especially when I was in primary school, a lot of my friends were white and quite small and skinny. And I just would just look at my African black body and I'd be like, girl, like, why aren't you? <laughs> why don't you look like the other girls? Um, and yeah, like, it was literally only until I started making black woman friends that I was like, okay, it's fine, you know. Um, to have a big bum and all these things which uh, i don't know the trauma from that was endless i don't even <laughs> i think for me it was like you know when you go mm. to a social right and like there's a point in the night <laughs> where all the white girls are just getting <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> I know. When your friendship group just gets slimmer and slimmer, and girls keep disappearing into corners, and you're just like, okay. And you're like, what? Oh, so that's happening now. And just being the girl who is not being picked, and you're right. like, um, oh my God, what's wrong with me? Oh my goodness, maybe I should change my hair. That's when I was really relaxing my hair, burning that bitch to a crisp. Oh, and oh, for what? And you t- it takes years. I think also they don't realize the years of reparation that you need to do to your own <laughs> body, to your mind. And just being like, you know what? This is my hair and it's beautiful. I like cut my hair off in grade 11 for the first time. And I just started growing oh, yeah. up naturally. And I was just having a great time with myself. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, still, my skin tone of blackness still wasn't good enough. Um mm-hmm. There were just so many things that you have to come to terms with and you understand that 
There's nothing wrong with you. It's no, everyone no. else, genuinely. Literally it's everybody else. else. Literally everyone else. Oh my God, Rufari, talking about socials, you just brought up another traumatic memory for me. And I know no. you guys have experienced this. You know, like, when your white friends will be like, I think you should hook up with this guy. No! It's black boy tabang, bro. Literally about to mention this because I remember when everyone started getting boyfriends. Well, as close to a boyfriend as you fucking had in like grade eight to nine, and we go on these massive group dates. And because I was the magical Negro, I was just always getting invited along. And I was like, hey, I like going to the movies and walking around Rosebank for hours on end doing fucking nothing. Um, let me just go. And they would always, they'd be me, they'd bring me, the girls would bring me, and the mm-hmm. boys would bring their one other black guy friend. <laughs> I've never spoken to this man a day in my life. We do not know each other. We do not know if we're going to get along, if we have anything in common. But by virtue of the fact that we are both black, we will be put together yeah. and people will just, and I remember the girls would whisper in my ear all night. Oh my God. Isn't like, we'll just call them Chabang since Rufar is <laughs> the name out there. Rufar. All day. Isn't Chabang so cute? Yeah. He's so oh, funny. He's so funny. I love him. And it was just so uncomfortable because no one would speak to me about it. And here's the thing that as much as me not being picked by white boys, had such a detrimental impact on my self-esteem black men you are not innocent you are it comes to the destruction of black girls self-esteem in these spaces y'all niggas were good for nothing giving us nothing <laughs> Girl. I can't even I can't even the way <laughs> you actually have to laugh. They gave us nothing. Oh hey, sis, give us crumbs. Oh my god. Well, actually, I Black men. The amount of forgotten. And it's funny because it's the same black men who now today. They're like my African queen, my African queen. My Nubian princesses. We have not forgotten your snow bunny days. We have not not forgotten your relaxed over days. We haven't forgotten. Actually, our title of this episode is an ode to those black boys. I will I will my name is Bongani, but you can call me Bongs. Call me bones, eh? This is for My you. Sipo, call me sips. Yeah. No, because it's like white boys were not picking us. And I also think it's just, it's so sad that like, you wouldn't even try hook up with a white guy because it was just like, no, that wasn't What are you happen. doing, bro? What are you doing? So then you get to black boys. Mm. They still don't want you. Mm. Like, how are you mm. supposed to feel as a black girl? And I guess for me, it was really difficult because I viewed myself as, you know, I was unable to really comprehend the difference between me and the white girls I was friends with. I mm. had my braids, so my hair was long. I said, that's my hair. I done paid for it, so it's mine. My hair was long. I made the same jokes as them. Mm. I 
you know, listen to the same music as them. And you know, in mm-hmm. high school, I sure as hell was dressing like them. You know, we'd all pull through in the same motherfucking outfit. You know that jacket, days. guys. That green jacket. That green jacket. <laughs> <laughs> that green jacket. One from superstars. Yes. <laughs> your Adidas superstars. Your skinny jeans. Absolutely. Done. And, you know, I have. I've always just been a very petite person. So mm. I had the same body type as yeah. them as well. I was literally those white girls, Mm. except I was black. And so kind of my really, you know, my assimilation into that culture made it very difficult for me to actually understand that the only reason I wasn't being picked was simply because I was black. When I came to the realization, I like to tell people, I only really discovered I was black when I was about 15. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, question for the black girls who uh, only realized they were black uh, solid 14 years into the existence. What was the thing or what was the day that you realized you're black and what was that like for you? I was reeling, girl. I was reeling. <laughs> you're like, oh shit. <laughs> I said, oh my God. The thing that happened. So much is just like, you know, a combination of events that made me realize that I was black. You know, I think Mm. it was certain things, like I said, just not being picked by white boys because I was black, even though like I literally fit every other kind of criteria, you know, for what was considered attractive in high school. Mm. I think constant comments on how well-spoken I am was another thing because I just didn't understand. I, everyone in my world spoke like this. And so I didn't understand why I kept being applauded and picked out in particular for the way that I spoke. Mm, And mm. there's just too many events to actually count that made me kind of wake up one morning when I was 15 and be like, oh my God, I'm black. Guys, (laughs) I just, I just remembered the most traumatic thing. (laughs) So I think like definitely like when you kind of, going into puberty that was definitely when you fully like conscientize oh shit i'm black and i'm being treated differently because of it um and hookup culture is one of the really the finest places to to see the way that you're treated differently and i remember this boy (laughs) fully telling us that um if you got degreened which like if our listeners don't know being degreened is having your first kiss and it was a black girl it didn't count Excuse wow. me. That's gorgeous. That's just that's just a beautiful experience. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, it was in grade seven. We went to a social at Saint Benedict's. We mm. were there, we were ready, we were dressed, the girlies put on their green jackets we were wearing our skinny jeans at the time it was tommy tacky's season what time the lumo laces too girl girl (laughs) and we were dancing (laughs) and then this white boy comes past me and my one other black friend (laughs) and then he was like hello sis tandy i was like (laughs) <laughs> what 
I literally was like, excuse me? And he was like, hello, it's this Tandy. And he just kept on laughing. And he was like cackling with his friends. And then he ran away like the little rodent he was. And I was so confused. And then I told my sister, my oldest sister about it. And at that time, let me tell you, Tambu, my older sister, was literally like conscientized black woman. Like she was reading Franz Fanon. She was reading um, I Write What I Like. And she was not taking white people. She was like, hey, I hate white people. You know, she was in that stage of her blackness. And then she was like, yeah, you know, right now I'm reading this Franz Fanon book, Black Skins, White Masks. And this is exactly what he talks about. And then me with my precocious ass, I was like, okay. So then I searched this thing. And I read a passage from Franz Renan at my tender age of 12. And what? <laughs> that's the most foreign thing I've ever that's, heard. I like, literally was shocked, like but I'm so not shocked. That's your report. I read Fanon when I was 12. <laughs> no, but it was <laughs> a beautiful experience because although much of the language was so fucking confusing. Like, what did you understand? But then the part that I read was him basically talking about the, in essence, awe of being a black person and how your skin is able to um, take in light and then produce a specific color. How beautiful are you? Your hair defies gravity, all that oh, good stuff. And then, but when you're around white people, all they see is essentially a monster a baboon and he just went on to this whole um example that he saw in like a marketplace where this black man was essentially scaring a white child who ran to his mother and said mom the monster tried to look at me <laughs> okay oh, and yeah. i was like so livid with the white people that boy and from then on i just started telling everyone call me sis tandy <laughs> because like if you want to like that Go ahead, but at least I know what I'm worth. I know that I mm. am probably more intelligible than some of you people here. I know mm. I'm pretty. My mom says I am. And Damn mm-hmm. straight. But I hate that that was what made me realize I was black. But I'm really grateful at the same time because I started reading Friends for None. <laughs> I, I don't know. It just it, it breaks my heart so much that we kind of have to rebuild our images of ourselves from the ground up because of just how undervalued we are as black women and i hope our kids are better <laughs> Yo, so, kids. Oh, sorry as far as not having kids <laughs> i refuse to raise a black child in this world i'm so sorry no thank you well, that's fair that's fair um before we move on uh, there's just one last traumatic memory that I know we've all experienced. But oh, Lord. I just... <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just again on the topic of socials and everything and white boys, how many times have you guys had to reintroduce yourselves to a white boy? <laughs> I have a friend who every, almost every time I greet her boyfriend, there's like this flicker of confusion across his face. I've had to be reintroduced to him on three separate occasions. And still, every time I see him and I say, hey, he kind of like gives a little like shake of his head. Like he's trying to like reorientate himself. And then he's like, oh, hi. 
but he never says my name. He never says hi, Amu. It's always mm-hmm. like hey, how hey, are you? Hey, you. <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't even know how many times you have to reintroduce yourself as a black girl to white boys who just sometimes black boys who just wouldn't remember your name and black boys are pretending. <laughs> <laughs> Call them out, and it's like I it swear. makes no sense because when they meet Ashley or Hannah, they will remember. Despite the fact that they all look exactly the same and have the same name, guys, they have the same topic, name. I remember once bringing this up with a boy, and him saying, "Black girls will have braids; they all look the same." I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. As if white girls look any different from each other. I risk my case. Done with it. I'm done. I'm, I'm also, I'm done. Um, just lots of trauma. Just trauma and trauma and trauma. And yet still, um, I think the three of us still chose to hold leadership positions at these schools and represent these predominantly white spaces. Call me out, girl. Call me out. Um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed. Fix these white spaces. And so why do we choose to lead them? And... Is it our job to fix them? Did we fix anything? What was our experience like in that capacity? I chose to lead my school because I think, like I said, I was very in love with that idea of being one, you know, of Mm. being the exceptional black at the Mm. school. And so that's definitely why I chose to lead it. Mm. But I will say that I started to become a lot more conscious, like I was conscientized as a black person Um, right around the time, like 16 to 18. Those are really like my radical years, you know, (laughs) I did start reading a lot of race theory and I did kind of reach that point. I think every black child in these spaces goes through of like their fuck white people phase. I fully grew into it my first year of university, but that was like very much the beginning of it. Mm. And so I arrived in my leadership position and my Zulu teacher, one of, only two black members mm-hmm. of staff at my school mm-hmm. as a dad. She was starting a diversity and transformation committee. And in hindsight, honestly, it was a crock of shit. But <laughs> it still exists till this day and it's still a crock of shit. But in that moment, I it was like the only hope that we had. And so mm-hmm. I threw myself into it. I, I'm not even going to pretend to be humble here. I fucking built that committee. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. built it. I was the first head. I built the infrastructure that it's using today. And I organized, you know, workshops. And at least, mm-hmm. you know, they wouldn't let me speak to the staff because I think they knew that I'd go a bit like, I'd be a bit like, <laughs> Um, Biko, I'd be a bit like too radical for them but they did let me speak to the students and so I really made an effort to try and educate them and make them aware of you know the differences like the different experiences that existed within their grades just because you get driven and your mom's all black Range Rover to school today doesn't mean that everybody else does I was in a grade with two girls who would take, it would take four taxis for them to get to school each day Mm -hmm. and for them to get home. 
Mm. And so it's understanding how those different experiences and backgrounds impact someone's ability to really engage with the school and with the, like everything the institution had to offer. So I really did try and make the best of the situation mm. and try and educate the lower grades. I, and I definitely did feel like it was my burden to do so because quite frankly, I didn't see anybody else with the same amount of power and that's power in inverted commas because student leaders really didn't have much power at all. We were just talking heads, but I didn't see anybody with the same amount of power as I did at that time, trying Mm. to do anything to advocate for students of color and queer students at my school. Um, No, definitely. I understand that because for me, it was almost like a, if not me, then who, if not now, then when as well, because you kind of look around and it seemed like the other black people who probably shared the same sentiments as you did not, I guess, um, have the same access to specific spaces. It just goes back to access because being a public speaker, I was on JJC and Grady Living and all those kinds of things. The school looked at me in a specific way or there's still a threat they looked at me in a specific way. And I also built up my transformation committee from the ground up. And if anyone tries to come at me or you or anyone else and say you did not, you're talking bullshit. Because we all know that without the black girls who would have done what they did for your school, tried to put in some sort of infrastructure to keep black women safe in their schools, our schools would literally have no leg to stand on. And I think I realized that very clearly when our school had a fucking fiasco with this horrible email that was sent out to the students following the death of George Floyd. And it was appalling to me that even then, even now, they still require us to come back and help them out and be like, okay, so this is what you do. And it was essentially our burden because being a leader in that school, being a black person in that school, witnessing what I did, I realized then more than ever that actually grownups know nothing. We are all literally just teenagers that just grew older and people don't know things because they don't want to know things and they don't want to learn. They don't want to read. They don't want to educate themselves. How do you, as a 60, 50 year old heading an independent all girls school, not know what a microaggression is until 2020. I find that really disgusting. I don't understand. So I think for me, when I was in that school, I knew the people that I was dealing with. I knew what the environment was and I would actually be sick to my stomach if I knew that I left the school and black girls were experiencing the same level of crap that I was experiencing from the time I was in grade three up until I was in the trick. So I had to do something. And it was sad because it takes a lot out of you. I mean, even just like reliving the experience and having to go back to the school and go into these fucking Kadisa 2 talks, it's draining because you are doing the... You have the width, you have the research, you have the vocab, and now you have to transfer it onto a 60-year-old woman and man. Personally, I don't know how black girls do it year in, year out, but I hope that they don't have to do it ever again. Yeah. Yeah, I think Grafaro and Amo, I think you've both kind of said it all. I think my experiences were basically exactly the same. My reasoning for choosing my leadership position was exactly the same. Um, Literally, just like a, if not me, then who? 
And to be honest, I hated every single moment of being <laughs> a head girl. Every I single <laughs> moment. did not like it because, you know, I went in there so optimistic and I was like, yeah, same as you guys, like very, very involved in the building of the transformation schools up, uh, transformation committees at my school. And I went in there, I'm like, I'm going to make change. We're going to make all this structural change. No, 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 no. First thing on my list, I was like, guys, you really need to change the name of the slave realm. And I remember bringing this up at our first prefect meeting. And I was expecting, I was people like supporting me, rallying behind me, like, yes, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And I said it, and I just got the blankest faces. People were just looking at me like, okay, what are you going to change the name to? Like, just no care. And from that, like, I feel like that set the tone for like the rest of my <laughs> time as a leader. It was just tiring trying to fight the system that doesn't really care to be changed or to be fought against. And these people who are enjoying the privileges of the school and the fact that it was built for them. And like, I was so exhausted. I was so exhausted. Honestly, I burnt out in my matricula because I was just trying to do so much, trying to change the school. And again, like, I was 18. Why? We were all all so... Qualification in like diversity training or anything like that that was always my biggest thing i was i was fucking 18 years old trying to have these really difficult conversations number one i wasn't fucking being paid for it Mm, first of all (laughs) and secondly i was going off of just things that i had read i remember when i was when i had to design diversity transformation workshops i was sitting in bed maths homework open here which by the way i was fucking failing math (laughs) (laughs) like googling like different kind of workshops and it just it took so much out of me and even now after the incredible wake up saint anne's campaign I have so much admiration for the students who put that together. I really do applaud Mm. them. It was Mm. well thought out, so well Mm. executed, so important. And, you know, I started getting, I reconnected with my high school to kind of, they wanted to speak to us. Suddenly they cared to have conversations about race. And I remember I, I had two meetings with my school and I just felt so exhausted after Mm. Yeah. Because it required me to relive that trauma, to look at the people who had facilitated my trauma as leaders of the school, to sit there and explain every little thing to them. It was draining. Mm. And I remember I, after my meeting, I called my boyfriend and I just vented. I'm like, I'm so tired. I'm so angry. I'm so this. And he literally just said to me, he's like, well, that's what white supremacy wants. He just said that this is a tool of white supremacy constantly making us relive our traumas and take drain us of our time and our energy for its own improvement and improve they don't even want to improve that's the thing all they want to do is steal time and energy away from us and we have to decide if we're willing to keep giving it to them you know and i felt very guilty i'm no longer engaging with my school about race anymore and I felt very guilty making that decision because I did think, like Rafaro said, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if yeah. I knew that someone like me, another black queer student, was struggling in the same ways that I did. Mm-hmm. But I just want to say to people who are engaging or not engaging with their schools, both is completely fine because every movement 
requires different people to play different roles. And some people are made, you know, they can handle the, you know, pressures of sitting at the table with those people and banging out policy and, you know, sitting there and, you know, fighting back against these really stubborn systems. Some people are made for that. And I admire them so much. Please keep doing what y'all are doing. But some of us, like me, can't do it. We're not both. Mm-hmm. That's not our role in the movement. And we might not know what it is yet. And that's okay. And you, you'll find it. But this kind of activism and this work shouldn't be as draining as they've made it for us. Mm-hmm. I think on that as well, it's just having to go back to the school, my school as well, to go into these talks. Um, one of the biggest points for me was that after this, after the alumni have come and said there's a problem, we wrote them a document with girls' testimonies, we gave them proposed ways forward, we gave them specific institutions that they can use, specific diversity and transformation companies that they can use to help them out. After this, it should be no duty of any black child to have to sit like Amo was doing, trying to figure out how to make a workshop, but then also try and figure out how to not, how to not fucking fail maths. Like, I want every black child to be able to go to school and just go to school. There is no reason as to why some child is educating old people. I really cannot do it. But also, just, we were robbed of so much. Just being able to be like white girls, essentially. You can go to school and your problems are, Johnny didn't text me back. Or Am I going to make this? Team hockey, you know, winning trees this weekend. Exactly. Not okay. Johnny will never look in my direction. Um, My teachers are telling me my hair is literally incorrect. I'm struggling with school. Okay, let me help make a diversity and transformation committee. Let me also work so I can try and be a leader in the school so that I can help out with these transformation issues. But at the same time, I'm doing IEB. Also, let me try and get onto JJC so that I can help out my um, CV to get onto council. Okay, but at the same time at school, someone is shouting at a girl in the boarding house for speaking her native language. Okay, just constantly (laughs) juggling. Every damn thing. And then at the end of the year, at the end of metric, they ask you, why don't you want to be part of the old girls committee? Fuck Fuck the old girls committee. Fuck them and their little planners that they hand out at final metric assembly. Pay me, bitch. For all the labor I did for y'all. Are you guys not on your old girls committees? I am. I am. I am. I fucking gave them my real email. <laughs> it's so bad. I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> I hate you both so much. <laughs> Girl, should I read you the newsletters? <laughs> Girl, I need to know what's going on. <laughs> I need to know if they have the new fountain. I need to know if there's like new grass on the Astro. I can't Thank you. Know. I'm not going to take a break, we'll be back. Okay, we're 
we're back from our break and um, we're going to start with a question to, to the floor. Um, <laughs> what would you say is the whitest thing about you that you've inherited from going to these schools? <laughs> Yo. Plan, girl. <laughs> I think I'd also say my voice as well. Um, I think it's, okay, so... Remember the time when we went to the beach? <laughs> yes, oh, God. I do remember. So, a group of us went to the beach and we were trying to find a nice aesthetic spot just to sit down, read, play Ooh, some Tomish, and lay our stuff there, eat some grapes, you know. And then there was a group of people who came, right? <laughs> and then they were of the Negro variety. And they were, playing, <laughs> they were playing their music relatively loudly. Some mm. people were entering the ocean without bathing suits, but, mm. but just their straight up clothes. And all of us just collectively, Amu and Ali, you're not allowed to leave me alone here. All of us were just like, Oh my god. And that was our widest moment, just as a collective, as individuals, because we were like, oh my goodness, there's the so that we were like <laughs> no white people with us that day. That was the day, right? It was just mm, it was just yeah, that was the day. <laughs> just the niggers. Every single every single one of us were like, oh my god. <laughs> like, oh. We even moved our spot. It was just we were on our ultimate Corrin that day. I'm so sorry. No, yeah. if we were Corrins, we would have walked up to them and been like, sorry, could you turn this down? It's a public uh, place. Yeah. It's a public I place. Feel like, I feel like I so definitely let's have ourselves a... some credit, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I feel like I have a Corrin personality that I've picked up from those schools. Um, I feel like I definitely sometimes when I'm on the phone, if I like have to call like I don't know like MTN or someone, I won't talk in my my normal voice, which already has a twang. I'll definitely put on my car and voice because I've learned that you know that's what people respond to. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if I have to complain about something, definitely learn some things from my white friends about how to complain. Absolutely. Um, how to complain effectively. <laughs> At restaurants, they fear me. <laughs> no, at restaurants, they fear me. My most current moment. I think you guys witnessed when I had that showdown with the manager at Ocean Basket in Camps Bay. I remember. I don't know if Rafara was there. No, I wasn't oh, there. My goodness. But the thing is, this is where I'm starting to think is it a current thing when a black woman does it, or is it just like self advocacy? Because the thing is, is that we were being given, like we weren't being served at the same level as everybody else. People who'd arrived after mm. us were getting served before us. And so I, we were all complaining and like grumbling to ourselves, just a table of black women saying that like, this is ridiculous, this is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> amongst ourselves. Um, but I don't know if any of us had any intention of really saying anything. And then the spirit of Karen just like entered my soul. And I had my acrylic nails and it was the first time I ever had acrylics in my life. So I stood in front of this white man manager, all three foot 
two of myself and the size of a thimble. I stood in front of this man, trigger fingers, red acrylics in his face on some, this is ridiculous. Mm. (laughs) I don't know. That's an interesting moment because I feel like it's a current type of energy, but you're actually Mm. using it to do something that's like quite antithetical to what Karen like represents. A group of young black women in a restaurant in Camps Bay and we weren't being treated at the same level as everybody else. So I was like, I'm not just going to sit here and grumble by myself. Because I think black mm. people, we're used to not making a fuss. Yeah. It's fine. Mm. They're trying their best. Don't make anyone's job more difficult than it is, which is true. I didn't, I made it a point of not attacking the person who was serving us because it wasn't their fault. The restaurant was just really busy that day and it was oh. severely understaffed. And so, you know what? I think some current, current energy has its uses. It's against white male managers. <laughs> yeah, reclaim Karen, guys. Reclaim it. So, guys, <laughs> would you guys send your kids to the same school or similar kind of schools that we went to after spending almost an hour unpacking our trauma? Ooh. Far, you don't get to cop out on that. I'm not having kids. I want to hear your answer first. Hypothetically, yeah. <laughs> okay, so my phantom children. Thank you. <laughs> you know what? Unfortunately, I definitely will be sending my phantom children to a private school because I think the way that they've placed themselves in just South Africa, in terms mm-hmm. of education boards internationally, they are quite prestigious. The only reason as to why, like I kept on saying this, the only reason as to why I can easily say in matric when I'm sitting in my room in the boarding house of insert school name here, yeah. I can say, I basically know I'm I, every single university I apply to, I'm getting in. Absolutely. It's because I went to a school with teachers that were well-equipped, that prepared me, and the name of the school propelled me enough. I got to do enough extracurricular with the right programs that's putting me in these mm. positions. And that's mm. something that I won't be able to get at a public school, which is just terrible. And I think governments need to work harder part two. <laughs> Love running. It's about to be a running issue for this podcast. <laughs> just, that should just be the name of the podcast overall. I think, yeah, it's just really ridiculous that we have to say, I can send my child to a school that, like, is the same price. My dad calculated, actually, how much he had spent for all three of us. 3K to matric, just in private school, not even including university. And he said, I could have bought myself two houses and a car. Oh, shit. <laughs> no, you can actually cry if you think about prices. You can cry. You can actually cry. cry. So my phantom oh, children I will spend two houses and a car on you. <laughs> for real, girl, because Not unfortunately that's what it takes in this country. Because if I think about the social aspects of it, the people I'm friends with, their parents in, like occupy really powerful places in this mm. country. In mm. sectors that I and industries I'd like to go into. And the thing is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, mm. just the sad reality of our country, and so yes, you know, you I get to put insert school name here on my CV and all the extracurriculars it allowed me to do, and you know the one on and I benefited from the one on one attention that I got 
in you know my very small classes yeah and but beyond that as well you know on Mm. the side i was going on holidays to these places with these families and i was sitting down at tables and speaking to them and you know i had somebody's father off you know him and this girl's dad and my dad were speaking to each other at our final matric assembly and my dad floated the idea that I was thinking about doing law at bits. And this father fully said, Oh, my friend, you know, I'm so close with him. He is actually a lecturer at bits. I'll ask him to keep an eye on Amul while she's there. You know, wow. when the thing. I, it's so sad. And it's, it's so embarrassing to say this because I'm a fucking Marxist. And I'm supposed to hate shit like this. Mm, but, but- the leg up it will give my children it would just be selfish of me to not give them that and you know yes i can reform so like private schools in south africa shouldn't exist period yeah but i'm not gonna let my politics get in the way of giving my children the head start that i was given and the head start that i know they're going they're going to need in this life Mm. schools um yeah, I think, again, the two of you have said every single point that I would have said. And yeah, I would 100% send my kids to the same kinds of school for the same reason my parents and our parents sent us to these schools because you want the same opportunities and for getting into university to be a guarantee and for passing the trick to just, you know, be a given. But yeah, it's just unfortunate that these schools represent such gross inequality in our country, you know? And there's so many times where I'm like, I got to have so much at my school. And mm. there are people, so, like, I got to have more than anyone needs at a school. And there are people who, like, their teachers don't even pitch up. They don't even have, mm. like, textbooks. And, you know, Rafai, you said it. Governments need to do better. I don't know if there's anything more to say. Governments <laughs> <laughs> oh. need to do better. Um, any final remarks on private schools in South Africa? I only have one. I'm scared. At black boys. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, girl, say it. Talk your shit. Black boys who went to private schools, I hope you understand that for every single black girl you encountered, you probably imparted a specific degree of trauma on her. And mm-hmm. I hope you repent for that shit. And I hope you reflect on your actions. And I hope you treat your black mother, sister, cousin 10 billion times better just to repay for what you did Absolutely. in that time of your life. And honestly, you deserve nothing good. Nothing, you deserve <laughs> less than nothing less than. Less than. Less than. I would say to young black women at these schools Mm. and young black women who survived these schools, queer, black queer kids who survived these schools. Mm. Keep talking your shit. Keep Mm. fucking up. Keep holding them accountable. Keep making noise. Because if on it's so sad that this still remains, but if we're not going to fight for ourselves and show up for ourselves, ain't nobody else going to do it. So... Mm. Yeah, um, I think we can close there. Thank you, everyone who listened to our episode. We'll see y'all next, not next week. Oh, this is a bi-weekly podcast for anyone who doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs>
this gets released every two weeks so we'll see you guys the week after next <laughs> the song you heard during our break and the song you're about to hear at the end of our podcast is called dust and iron by the cape town based musician red robin she has a new single out called i'll stay the same that's available on all streaming platforms so please make sure you give her a listen and follow her on instagram where her handle is at red robin music robin spelled r-o-b-y-n at the hectic podcast we make sure that we support local talent independent talent and woman talent and so if you listen to our podcast you should too